0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented
1: by University of California Television. Good evening. I'm Wade Clark Roof, Director of the World Cap Center for the Study of Ethics, Religion, and Public Life, and I welcome you to this event. Thank you for coming. Our speaker tonight, of course, is uh, Sister Joan Chittister who is this year's Martin E. Marty lecturer in the Cap Center. Each year we have a Martin E. Marty lecturer and she is this year's lecturer. A Benedictine sister who is the founder and executive director of Benevision in Erie, Pennsylvania. Sister Joan is an international lecturer on behalf of peace, human rights, women's issues, justice, and contemporary culture. She's an award-winning author of more than 35 books and writes a weekly web column from Where I Stand for the National Catholic Reporter. Her publications include The Gift of Years, Welcome to the Wisdom of the World, Called into Question, A Spiritual Memoir, Wisdom Distilled from the Daily, and Faith and Ferment, which she wrote with Martin E. Marty some years ago. Currently, Sister Joan serves as co-chair of the Global Peace Initiative of Women, a partner organization of the United Nations facilitating a worldwide network of women peace-builders, particularly in in Israel and Palestine. In March of 2008, she was an organizer of Making Way for the Feminine for the Benefit of the World Community, an international conference held in Japan, excuse me, held in Japar, India. She is the co-chair of the Network of Spiritual Progressives with Rabbi Michael Lerner and Cornell West. In April 2005, her commentary from Rome on the month-long panel events was aired on CNN, the BBC, and all national US media networks. On Easter Sunday 2006, she was a guest on Meet the Press with Tim Russert, the late Tim Russert, and in 2004, she was a guest on Now with Bill Moyers. Sister Joan appeared with His Holiness the Dalai Lama at the first Emory University Summit of Religion, Conflict, and Peacebuilding in 2007 and at the Seeds of Compassion in 2008. She attended the fourth United Nations Conference of Women in Beijing and the 1999 Parliament of World Religions in Cape Town, South Africa. She has served as president of the Leadership Conference of Women Religious and president of the Conference of American Benedictine Purises. She received her doctorate from Penn State University in Communications Theory. Tonight, Sister John will address the topic of spirituality and culture. Please welcome Sister John Chittister. Thank you.
2: It's so nice if somebody applauds. If you're Joan Chittister and somebody applauds before you speak, <laughs> you have no idea what they're going to do afterwards. <laughs> I, I listened to the introduction, too. I said to myself, Good God, Joan, you haven't earned a decent living since 1969. <laughs> I'm also a Benedictine monastic, and uh, in in, uh, in your formation in a monastic community, one of the first things you learn is a saying from the desert monastics that says, uh, Woe to those whose reputation is greater than their work. <laughs> <clears throat> there is, however, an introduction that I like and that I prefer and that I'm comfortable with, so, Clark, don't take offense. Because uh, I know you worked hard at that one, uh, but this is the one I'd rather have the audience know. Back in Pennsylvania, we tell the story about a rabbi and a priest who went to um, a prize fight together. And when when the little Jewish boy got in the ring, they say he jumped in the ring, he went into the middle, he beat on his chest... He checked his biceps and he ran to the corner. When the little Catholic kid got in the ring, he went to the middle of the ring. He beat on his chest. He checked his biceps. He made the sign of the cross and he went to his corner. The rabbi looked at the priest and he said, Is that going to help him? And the priest said, Only if he can fight. Uh, so, Wade, we are now pledged to pay not one bit of attention to anything you've said. We're going to talk about spirituality and culture, but I want you to know that I see it myself through, through multiple filters, which I'll share with you before I give you mine. The first is a, <clears throat> the story about a, a guy who went up for the first time in his life in a a small plane. He was scared to death. They said to him, don't worry, it's not a problem. We put a parachute on you. If anything happens, you just jump onto the plane, you pull the cord on the right-hand side, and you will waft slowly to earth. Now, if in the event that that cord does not work, we have a shorter cord on the left-hand side. Pull that, the ride will be a little bumpier. You'll hit a little harder, but you'll be fine. So he stepped off the, uh, out the out the plane door. He came down, tried the right cord, nothing happened. Tried the left cord, nothing happened. The Earth is getting closer. He sees over here a guy as he's going down, a guy coming up on a kitchen chair. He says, "Hey, buddy, do you know anything about parachutes?" The guy yelled back, No! Do you know anything about gas stoves? (laughs) Now, the point is that culture is hard enough to talk about in the year 2009 without adding spirituality to it. And normally anybody of average intelligence would not agree to do this in such an august audience except that I am driven by four other elements. The first is the statement of the Roman philosopher Boethius, who wrote, every age that is dying is simply a new age coming to life. And the geologist philosopher Chardin said, the only task worthy of our efforts is the construction of the future. And the Chinese say, however, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. (laughs) So I want to talk a little tonight about the possible roads. Somewhere else, I read the the following definition of an American. It says, Americans are people who are born in the country where they work with great energy so they can live in the city where they work with even greater energy so that someday they can live in the country again. (laughs) Well, I don't know if that definition is clinically right or wrong, but I do know that it has a great deal to say about the relationship between culture and spirituality, between what we do with what we are and why we do it. There are two pieces of religious literature that indicate, I think, with special clarity, this essential connectedness between spiritual maturity and cultural consciousness. The first call comes from Exodus 3.18. You know it as well as I do. The scripture reads, On Horeb, the scripture says, The angel of Yahweh appeared to Moses in the shape of a flame of fire coming from the middle of a bush. There was this bush blazing, but it was not being burnt up. And Moses said, I must go and look at this strange sight and see why the bush is not burnt. And then scripture says, Now Yahweh saw Moses go forward to look and God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, he said, come no nearer. Take off your shoes for the place where you are is holy ground. And then Yahweh said, I have seen the miserable state of my people in Egypt. I have heard their appeal to be free. I am well aware of their sufferings and I mean to deliver them. So I'm sending you, the Pharaoh, to bring my people Now, that's how you know God is Irish. We are in this God-awful mess, and it's up to you to solve it. Now, think of it. Have you ever heard a message more dramatic than this one? Just at what would seem to be the moment of Moses' total immersion in the presence of God God stops Moses where Moses is to teach him that his holiness depends on finding holiness where he stands. And then by taking that energy to other people for their liberation. Moses learns four things about holiness in this scripture. First, holiness is made of virtues, not of visions. Second, Moses learns that holiness depends on being for the others. Third, Moses learns that holiness depends too on being about something greater than the self. And finally, Moses learns that holiness is being present to the presence everywhere it is and even where it seems it is not. The second story of culture and spirituality comes from the tales of the Hasidim. The story goes that an old rabbi of great wisdom whose fame had spread beyond his own congregation to villages and rabbis far on the other side of the mountains one day suddenly died. The young rabbis were revived. Now they said, what shall we do? when our people are looking to us for guidance without the old master where shall we get the answers to the great questions of life so they decided among themselves that one night they'd go to the Martin Marty lecture (laughs) and they would pray and fast until the old man's holiness and wisdom would be infused into one of them and sure enough one night in a dream the old man appeared to one of the younger rabbis. Master, the young teacher said, it is so good that you have returned. You see, now, with you gone, the people are looking to us for answers to the great questions of life, and we are still unsure. For instance, Master, they're demanding to know on the other side of what account are the sins of youth. And the old man said, the sins of youth, why, on the other side, the sins of youth are of no account whatsoever. And the young rabbi said, on the other side, the sins of youth are of no account whatsoever. Then what has it all been about? On the other side, what sin is punished? if not the sins of youth? And the old man answered slowly and clearly, on the other side, that sin which is punished with constant and unending severity is the sin of false piety. On the other side, that sin which is punished with constant and unending severity, is the sin of false piety. The point is clear, isn't it? It's not that past pieties are wrong. I watched you come in. I know how old you are. Everybody in this auditorium tonight, most of you, like me, are here precisely because of our past pieties. No, it isn't that past pieties are wrong. It's simply that past pieties are past. Why? Because, you see, piety is cultural. Holiness depends then on our choosing the pieties that are proper to these times. Culture and spirituality, in other words, are of a piece. They're not distinct. As Moses and the old master both knew, the function of spirituality is not to protect us from our times. The function of spirituality is to enable us to leaven our times, to stretch our times, to bless our times, and to break open our times to the present will of God. And what does all of that mean to us tonight? To spirituality, to ministry, to vocation, to living a spiritual life today. Well, if culture is the way people think and feel and behave as a people, and if spirituality is the way we live out the life and teachings of Jesus in this particular culture at this particular time, then the question for thinkers, writers, theologians, religious, clergy, laity, catechisms, and curriculums must become what cultural realities are challenging the gospel now? And how can the gospel best challenge the culture if we here and now are really to be a holy People. Well, the history of spirituality identifies three basic responses to culture the intellectual, the relational, and the performative. All of those have worked throughout history at one time or another in great streams of response. And intellectual spirituality, the scholars define as a spiritual life that is creed centered. People who are creed-centered are committed to a checklist of beliefs, to dogmas and doctrines and documents and canons. They're committed to union with God, but somewhere else. And intellectualist spirituality is very good, very good at drawing denominational lines. Methodists over here, Presbyterians over here. Roman Catholics here, Greek Catholics here. And maintaining orthodoxy and defining heretics. These people are the people who know who's in and who's out at all times. And they see personal mystical experiences as signs of holiness. The intellectualist wants to stay and contemplate the burning bush to draw it to size, to define its properties, to dogmatize its meaning and describe the distance, of course, to and from it at which contemplating it becomes a mortal sin. (laughs) A relational spirituality, this second stream of spiritual life that races through the Christian history, on the other hand, is committed to the development of human bondedness, of community, as the preeminent model of the Christian life. The relationist talks a lot about love. And the relationist is willing to stay in Egypt, if necessary, bush or no bush. Laughter If you had missed that when I was going home. (laughs) To keep the slaves company in their pain, relationists comfort the oppressed, but they too often do little to change the oppression. Finally, the third stream of Spirituality, in the history of spirituality, is performative spirituality, and it is action-centered. Performers in the spiritual life pray every day, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And then, God love them, they make every effort they can to do something to bring it. Performers are people who know that the word is incomplete until it becomes a transforming action. Performers would prefer to reform Egypt by carrying the burning bush back there (laughs) to create a bright new world in the shell of the old, whether the old world wants it or not, whether the old world will welcome the growth or not. All of these spiritualities are real. They, they all were historically prominent in one period or another. But the question for us is tonight, what's our cultural situation now? And which type of spirituality, if any of those, is most needed now and here? And how do we build it? And what does that have to do with the Christian life today? when for the first time in polling history, the military supersedes the church as, quote, the most trusted institution in society. So let's take a few minutes and look briefly at the cultural situation in the United States from 1960 to the present. That's your lifetime. I know it. You know it. Let's admit it. That's the era that has formed the spiritual life of most of the people here tonight. Like Moses, in this period, we have experienced major shifts in the national belief value system. Family patterns have changed. Sex roles have changed. And governments, including our own, that talked freedom and justice and human rights, have been riven with one corruption after another and so became daily less and less credible. Two, the most dramatic transformation of world view that has ever taken place in human history has taken place in this period in your lifetime and mine. And what was it? John Glenn the first American astronaut to circle the globe took from outer space the only picture of the planet that had ever been taken. And he took it, they say, with a $45 camera that he bought at the local drugstore the night before the trip. And the image of that bright blue globe lost in black space is spinning in your mind right now, isn't it? Tell to the truth, yes or no. <laughs> Up until that moment in your life, The human view of earth and its place in the universe had never been anything else but theory and speculation and educated calculations. Up until that moment in your lifetime, you and I knew where we lived only on the basis of artistic guesses. Now, for the first time in history, We could really see ourselves in all our grandeur and in all our smallness. This generation too saw scientific progress that was often more threat than help. In these few years of your life, science has changed life and changed death, changed family and changed sex, changed birth and changed war from struggle to annihilation, changed creation from critically unique to gloan, cloned. With the creation of a sheep named Dolly, the definition of life became obsolete, shook and shifted and became uncertain until finally, science has managed in our generation, yours and mine, to change the very meaning of meaning. In this era, too, military security became our highest priority, our greatest expenditure, and our scarcest commodity. Thanks to our military security, indeed, we have created the end of the world, and we have stored it, in the cornfields of kansas and china and the soviet union and england and india and now in pakistan and iran and north korea korea and and who knows whom next till the whole globe is nuclearized and so we have killed millions indirectly who were in our being refused because of the skewing of the military budget their direct development needs. In this age, too, we have seen new interest in the wisdom of the East as the wealth of the West has lost its power to save. American dominance, American isolation, and perfect security ended with the launching of Sputnik. We will never see the likes of that again. And the rise of a third world, with its commitment to neutrality, rather than either communist or capitalist ideologies, challenged the U.S. notion of its manifest destiny to be the city on the hill, the New Eden, the covenanted people as never before in U.S. history. And in this same time frame of your lifetime, integration, black, Hispanic, Indian, Inuit, challenged white Supremacy and feminism challenged the white male system and even the white male god. And great poverty in the midst of great affluence, the working poor, those millions of Americans everywhere, that 20% of Americans who can't get full time work or the other millions of them who are working two full-time jobs without full-time pay. And at this very moment, tonight and tomorrow morning, the millions who can get no job at all to go to tomorrow, thanks to the institutionalized greed of many, challenges all the American myths ever made about fair play and virtue and blessing and the Protestant ethic and the American dream and enlightenment and the democratic system and freedom and justice for all. And all of this has happened in a society, remember, where 10% of the world, Western Europeans and North Americans, consume hoard, waste, or control two-thirds of the resources of the rest of the world. Indeed, social consensus on values and beliefs has broken down. An annual survey of college freshmen sponsored by the American Council on Education finds in the midst of all this that in the last decade, unlike their predecessors, college freshmen in this decade are less concerned about pollution, more approving of abortion on demand, Less opposed to the death penalty, more intent on cohabitation before marriage, less committed to the elimination of racism, less obligated to help others in difficulty, less interested in environmental cleanup and control, and considerably less concerned about developing a philosophy of life, and extremely more interested in being, quote, very well off financially. And how'd they get there? We taught them. And all of this, while well, this government alone, my government alone, spent on average only 20 cents of every disposable dollar on human resources, education, employment, job training, social services, health and fiscal assistance, but spent anywhere from 59 to 64 cents of every tax dollar minus entitlements that Congress has the authority to distribute on the military. Indeed, Dear friends, tonight, we badly need, we sorely, definitely need spiritual cultural revitalization. Indeed, the consensus on old values has broken down. Indeed, the spirit is dying in the most church going nation in the world. Indeed, the current spiritual cultural dilemma looms large individualism infects every institution. Individualism has been raised to the point of high art. Individualism is running rampant to the point of the pathological in this society, at a time, in fact, when global community is urgent if both this planet and its peoples are to be saved. Our current spiritual dilemma then lies in how to link the personal with the public dimensions of life. How do we make private spirituality of good people the stuff of public leaven in a world that is fiercely private and dangerously public at the same time? The fact is that simple spiritualities of creed and community and cooperation are obviously no longer enough. They're not working. It, it's not affecting anything that's going around this bubble that we call our spirituality. We need now, surely, a new spirituality a spirituality of contemplative co creation, of transcendent vision, of communal responsibility. If the culture is to be Christianized? No, 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 my friends. If Christians are to be Christianized. Genesis insists that the function of humanity is to nurture and cultivate and care and procreate and be responsible for sustaining creation, not consuming it. Carrying on God's work in the world is, in other words, the spiritual life. And what does religion and what do religious people have to do with all of that? Well, when culture is in chaos and society is in upheaval, it may be important uh, to look for a moment at the process of social revitalization. Step away for a minute. Back away from church and religion. Let's let's take a minute to see what social science might be saying to the church about cultural, spiritual revitalization. The anthropologist Anthony F.C. Wallace out of the University of Pennsylvania years ago taught that major transformations of thought and behavior happen in a society when society discovers that a once common set of religious understandings have become impossible to sustain. At that point, Wallace says, the society begins to undergo a revitalization movement of four major stages whether it wants it or not. In other words, the gorge has opened. The, 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 the dam has broken. Once it's no longer common, revitalization has already begun. There's, there's nothing else to do but go through it. And Wallace says it has four stages. The stage one of the revitalization process is a period of serious Individual stress. In this stage, people begin to question, singly, alone, in pictorial, as the Catholics say, in your breast, in the heart, privately, silently, the past values that they learn to live by and they start to establish within themselves new patterns of thought and behaviors in the face of the old, in fact, despite the old. They simply don't think about things anymore as they once thought about them, what the generation before them took for granted about segregation, maybe, or divorce, for instance or mixed marriages, maybe, or birth control, or nuclearism, perhaps, or in vitro fertilization, or cloning, or stem cell research, or capital punishment, or homosexuality, maybe. They begin within themselves to debate and discard. You want to know if you've ever been there? Go back to Thanksgiving dinner when the whole family was there, all the brothers, all the sisters, the last piece of pumpkin pie is now gone, and everybody's into the headlines from the morning paper. And you push your chair back, and you put a hand on the two chairs around you, and you look up and down the table, and you listen to them for a few minutes, and you say to yourself, maybe I am adopted. you know you live on another planet. (laughs) Wherever they came from, you didn't. That's all you know inside. You learn then in those groups to smile and nod and say, "Mm hmm, mm hmm, mm hmm. But whatever you do, for God's sake, don't get into a conversation (laughs) with a brother-in-law that was the bantamweight champion of the world. In stage two of the revitalization process, wide reaching social stress becomes apparent. What we once called our culture, what we thought that as a group Americans thought, Presbyterians thought, Anglicans thought, Catholics thought, is now barely recognizable. And people begin to decide that their problems aren't personal. Remember that period in between where you said, I'm nuts, I'm losing, I'm crazy, I'm going, I need help. And then they discover that others feel the same way they do. And they go home at night and say, at least I'm not the only crazy one. And suddenly in the society, groups begin to form and new organizations spring up. Their problems, they decide, are a result of failure in the anchor institutions. They depended on all their lives for stability and direction. So they set out to do it for themselves. They join together now to ban the bomb and stop the war, to save the whales and revive the earth, to eliminate the death penalty and send women to the House and the Senate. They join Greenpeace and Physicians for Social Responsibility and Women Church and the National Organization of Women and Voices in the Wilderness and Witnesses for Peace and Human Rights Organizations everywhere and call to action and voice of the faithful and dignity and the woman Women's Ordination Conference and moveon.org. <laughs> and when they go to the local dinner party and a cocktail party and reception, we begin to hear things like this. Off the left and right shoulder, the churches are out of tune with the world's needs. We begin to hear the schools are so remorse. From the real questions of life, they say. The government is corrupt and corrupting, they decide. And suddenly, there is political rebellion in the streets and schism in the churches. In stage three of the revitalization process, Wallace says, though people as a whole agree now, that we do have a problem. They can't agree on how to cope with this new social situation. Some want to change the system. Wipe it out. Delete it. Begin again. And some want, on the other hand, to send in the troops to save the system. They want to stop this nonsense, repel these troublemakers, Excommunicate these heretics, crush them if necessary, but hold the line. And the two groups quarrel and divide, and they both blame authority. They inevitably, in stage three of a revitalization movement, give birth. To a nativist or traditionalist movement, listen to it again inevitably did you hear it, what was the word? Inevitably. inevitably in stage 3 of a revitalization movement a nativist or traditionalist movement arises, nativists argue that the danger has come from the failure of the people to adhere more strictly to the old beliefs and values and behavior patterns, ever meet one of them? They want to do more of the same old, same old, but this time they want to do it bigger and better. They want the old-time religion, and they find scapegoats aplenty. The economy would be all right, they say, if it weren't for unions. Marriages and families and children would be all right, they argue, if it weren't for the F word. What is it? feminism they never even seem to notice that these perfect families are precisely what brought us to this point and the country would be fine they say if it weren't for socialized medicine or liberalism or feminism or democrats or republicans or blacks or arabs or mexican or japanese or Gaddafi or hussein or milosevic or osama bin laden and gloria steinem <laughs> And whomever or whatever is a convenient scapegoat today. In the fourth and final stage of a revitalization movement, Wallace points out, comes the building of a new worldview and the restructuring of old institutions to enable it. How? Well, in simpler societies, the leadership for this rebuilding of the society usually came from a single charismatic Individual. Psalm 89 is very clear about this kind of social psychology. Psalm 89 says, And Moses intervened, and you, O God, turned aside your destruction. But in more complex societies like our own, multiple spokespersons, many leaders, a chorus of voices, is needed to lead the people to new understandings about old values. The role of these spiritual leaders, Wallace says, is not to repudiate the older worldview entirely. The role of these new spiritual leaders is not to repudiate the older worldview entirely. It is to shed new light on it so that it can be remembered that God's same Spirit manifests itself always in new ways to meet new needs. Then more flexible people begin to understand and experiment with the new consensus so that cultural transformation, this movement from death to life of an entire people can begin to happen. But finally, Wallace points out, and perhaps most importantly, so those of you who are already gone, please wake up, listen well. It is not the older generation. It is not the people who brought the old ideas and goals and values and designs from one desert to another with them that will lead today's institutions to a social, spiritual, philosophical, and structural newness. I'm going to say that again. I don't want you to miss it. It is not the older generation. It's not the people who brought the old ideas and goals and values and designs from one desert to another with them that will lead today's institutions to social, spiritual, philosophical, and structural newness. Now, by this time, you should be saying, who invited her? (laughs) Are we paying her? Did I drive all this way for nothing to be told I'm useless? Hold on. No, it will be the generation that grew up with the emerging insights. When the generation that spent their entire life wandering in the desert with no experience of of what preceded it, no memory of the past before the chaos, and knew no other, When this desert generation comes to maturity, then old institutions will find themselves with new leadership. And then the institutions are restructured. But only. But only. And now you must really pay attention. But only provided that someone, you And I, the older generation, the theologians, the thinkers, the teachers, the preachers, the parents, the catechists, the ministers, bring this generation up with the new questions and the new insights. Why else spend your life than this? And how do we know it can happen? Because in this country alone, we have seen one generation withdraw their allegiance to a king. And the next abolish slavery. And the one after that regulate businesses. And the last one empower laborers. And this one, now and here, beginning to struggle for liberation, for equality, for global synchronicity, for survival. And Moses intervened, the psalm teaches, and you turned aside your destruction. What God saves, in other words, God saves through us. Just as God did with Sodom and Gomorrah and Mordecai and Esther and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the Pharaoh and every seeker of miracles in the New Testament. We need to intervene for one another, for the future, for the whole human community, for the globe. We need a new world view that pits the old one in new light, but how? And where will this spirituality of contemplative co-creation, this mystical vision and human community come from in an individualistic culture? And in what way can the spiritual leaders of our time help to build this bridge from privatized piety to public moral responsibility? I am suggesting tonight that as a spiritual people, we begin to look again at the very basis of social brokenness described in all religions, that we ourselves begin to see the spiritual link between the personal and the political, between personal piety and spiritual maturity. I'm suggesting that as teachers, counselors, directors, Christians, we begin to look again at the seven deadly sins, but this time on two levels, on the private and the public, rather than on simply one. The level of the personal yes but on the level of the global as well. Now, I'm happy to be here tonight to tell you that I began to talk about this 15 years ago. The Vatican issued an article on it last month. um, (laughs) That those who, therefore, those of you who came here looking for heresy, I am sorry to disappoint. Look again at envy, pride, lust, and gluttony, at covetousness, anger, and sloth. In each of us, of course, but around each of us as well. Let's look at them. Envy, for instance, on the personal level, is certainly, it's rooted in a lack of acceptance of self. I don't accept me. I don't like me. So it leads me in a sinful form to a rejection of you, of everybody else. But at the global level, isn't envy, ethnocentrism, national chauvinism as well? In Bangladesh, for instance, each person consumes an average of six and a half pounds of meat per year, and they consider themselves blessed. In America alone, each person consumes an average of 271 pounds of meat a year. And think ourselves entitled to it. The developing nations consume an average of 53 pounds of meat a year to our 271 pounds of meat a year, whoever they are. So what happens as a result of that? We level other nations' forests for grazing ground so we can have 99-cent hamburgers because our own amount of grazing ground apparently isn't enough for us. When we uphold criminal governments for our own good, El Salvador, Chile, Philippines, Nicaragua, and Iraq rather than recognize the needs of the people of that country, when we impose our values and structures in return for trade and profit and power, isn't that a form of envy? And it's fear of the other? We need to think and write and preach and talk about that. We need to examine our consciousness on... The first of the seven deadly sins. Pride is, of course, the need to dominate and coerce others on a personal level, but on the global level, isn't it also the mania for national superiority? Will we ever be the country again that we used to be? For racial superiority, are those people just going to come in here and take over? for being numero uno, for having the best of everything, for having strawberries in January, in a northern winter, whatever the cost to the pickers. The United States, most Americans, are absolutely stunned to hear and most likely to resist to know The United States has the lowest per capita foreign aid program in the world, and most of it is military. But Americans spend $8 billion a year on cosmetics, and Europeans spend half that amount on ice cream alone. That's $2 million more than the amount needed Economists and sociologists tell us to provide basic education for everyone in the world. We need to think and write and talk and examine our consciences about that while 200 million children every day, three-quarters of them girls, never even get to start school, let alone the finish. Lust is clearly the exploitation of another for the sake of my immediate physical satisfaction. We're beginning to recognize it when it's date rape or pornography or selfish sensuality true. But is there yet enough conscience in us to also see lust as the national passion for the instantaneous gratification that justifies the exploitation of whole peoples? so that we can have the cheap cash crops and the conveniences we demand that are raping their lands and looting their futures without having to pay decent wages and pensions and benefits to get them? Isn't it the exploitation that comes from lust that leads to the feminization of poverty and the loss of feminine resources and values in a world that is reeling from the institutionalization of purely masculine values. Two-thirds of the minimum wage workers in the United States tonight are single mothers with three children who are earning $6.55 an hour or a total of $13,600 for a 40-hour week. But to support those children to live as we live and be self-sufficient, Single mothers, the United States government says, need to earn $16 an hour. Isn't it the uh, institutionalization of lust that makes it possible to condemn the use of condoms or the birth control pill or sex education in schools, but never ever say a word about the rape hotels in Bosnia? while we decried condoms and sex education, 200 women a night were being herded into hotels in Bosnia, raped all night long, and dumped into graves in the woods. And I heard not one priest, minister, rabbi, or imam say a single word about them. Not one. Not one. Well, they talked about all the sexual sins. Not one. Which made everything else they said a lot less credible to me. They never said a word about genital mutilation in Africa by any church in any kind a document. In fact, the Vatican in the late 17th, 18th century sent a mission to Ethiopia to study genital mutilation and declared that genital mutilation was necessary. And no Protestant church said one word about it until the Scottish Protestant church in Kenya in the 1920s condemned it. Not one Protestant church said another word until the 1990s in any sort of official format. Isn't it lust too that drains the life of a man for a company and then when he's middle-aged throws him and his body away so the company having destroyed that body does not now have to pay pension to sustain it. Isn't it lust that is using up the bodies of children between the ages of 4 and 15 for 6 cents an hour, for 70 to 110 hours a week in our sweatshops from India to Asia, making jeans and suits and shoes and toys for our children while we practice economic pedophilia on theirs? Have you sent one postcard to one person about that issue? Gluttony, the overconsumption of food, leads to waste and bloatedness and misuse of resources on the personal level, but it is also surely at the base of the sick and sickening practice of the selling of debt to the indebted, to the over-rich so that they can become richer while the poor become poorer and the foundations of this whole society on its hard-working population collapses. Isn't it also at the base of the lack of distribution of surplus to the dying in Ethiopia and the destitute in Haiti and North Korea and the Sudan and the Congo? And all the while, Americans and Europeans spend $17 billion a year on pet food, and that is $4 billion more than would be needed to provide basic health and nutrition for everyone in the world, while there are three people undernourished for every five people who are overweight in this world. Our Environmental Protection Agency budget... Of seven point two tenths billion dollars is one fifth as much as we spend on our pets, Someone wrote of this culture. We do not have a war on poverty; we have a war on poor people, and what are we Christians doing about it as we say our prayers and give our retreats and organize our church socials? We speak of covetousness as a lack of a sense of enough. And we know that on the personal level, covetousness leads to the sinful brink of hoarding or an inordinate desire for unnecessary possessions. But what's the difference between that kind of covetousness and the national demon that is fueling a military budget in the quest for unassailable superiority and puts the poor of the world in a situation of paying the rich of the world for debts that the rich begged them to take in 1970 22 governments promised to spend seven percent of their gross national income on the development of the third world 35 years later only five had done it Norway Sweden Luxembourg Netherlands and Denmark New Zealand Spain Portugal Greece and the United States are the lowest of them all at less than 0.03%. And we consider ourselves so generous. Anger we recognize as the cultivation of an eschatological sense of righteousness and judgment, of putting ourselves in the place of the patient justice of God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But what has happened to national moral fiber? When whatever evil we say of the other, the Chinese, the North Koreans, the Arabs, Iran, Iraq, the axis of evil is counted as virtue, what about the sin of demonizing our enemies in order to justify the military-industrial complex or to determine our immigration quotas accordingly? We abhor slopes, and the assumption that anyone has the right to live off the efforts of others, and we see it as laziness and lack of responsibility. But where is Christian leadership in the building of a new world view about the sinfulness of multinational structures that live off the backs of the poor by giving unjust wages and benefits, or the sinfulness of taking the unequal unequal treatment of women for granted? And the blasphemy of absorbing women's lives at lesser pay, for the convenience of others, and then moralizing about that kind of domestic servitude in the name of God's will for us. By the year 2058 billion of the projected nine billion people in the world will be living in developing countries, over half of those will be women with no influence whatsoever on the systems that control their lives. While we take as women our own gains for granted and say nothing in behalf of women who cannot say a thing and do nothing about the wages they get to do our work. While we're proud of the jobs, the degrees, the money positions that have been gotten for us as women by the courage of the women who have gone before us, we now pronounce feminism over. I am so sick and tired of hearing young women tell their mothers, Oh, mother, that was your thing. That's so passe. That's over now. And I put every one of them with my finger on their chest against the wall and say, As you are now pronouncing feminism over, darling, you tell me what you have done with all your privilege, your profit, and your status for the sake of women around the world who will come after you and who have nothing at all now. So we go on blindly in our search for goodness, oblivious of new moral imperatives. We counsel and educate for individuality and autonomy. We tell our high school students, we tell these kids coming through these colleges, what's, what's your education about? Where's the money? Where's the achievement? How can you get up in the world? Where's the boat? Where's the condo? Where's the the pension? We counsel and educate them for individuality and autonomy and control and independence in a world that needs community and mutuality and cooperation and interdependence and human responsibility and contemplative co-creation instead. And all the while, we go to church and we go to church and we go to church. 70% 70% of the respondents to a study conducted, conducted by the Williamsburg Charter Foundation, a non-sectarian organization concerned with religion in U.S. public life, said within the last decade that, quote, religion has a place in public life. Well, where is that public religion in private life supposed to come from if you and I do not develop a public as well as a personal and a private conscience, if you and I are not thinking, teaching, preaching, and talking about these things. Scripture says, when Jacob saw Joseph in Egypt, he said, now that I know that you live, I can die. And God said to Moses, stay where you are. Where you are is holy ground. And an ancient people tell the story about the seeker who asked the Holy One, Holy One, before I follow you, tell me, does your God work miracles? And the Holy One said, it depends on what you call a miracle. Some people say that a miracle is when God does the will of the people. We say that a miracle is when the people do the will of God. Clearly the goal of the spiritual life is like Jacob that we not die until we have assured a dynamic and meaningful spirituality for the next generation. It is like Moses to recognize where we are as the ground of God's grace and so to respond to it ourselves. It is certainly like the Sufi master to see life differently so that God's miracles can happen in our own time so that we can find meaning in life by being about something greater than ourselves so that we can realize the truth of Templeton's insight that if we had been holier people, we would have been angrier, oftener. For the sake of the people, for the sake of the poor, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the globe, pray to have rise in you again the kind of holy anger that makes the spiritual life of the new millennium even holier than the last. Knowing that every age that is dying is simply a new age coming to life. Knowing that though nothing we do changes the past, everything we do changes the future. It's out of that perspective that I have come all this way to beg you to do something all of us, each of us, to change that future now before the future is too late for us all. Thank you for your evening.
3: Good evening, Sister.
1: You mentioned about the individualism that's rampant in society, and Um, how the culture sort of transmutes this dynamic, Uh, one of the things that I've noticed is the so-called New Age spirituality and spiritual movement and self-empowerment type psychologies that sort of merged with uh, various kinds of economic and capitalist-oriented philosophies. They're mostly practiced by liberals and progressives and seem to uh, take on this uh, philosophy of oneness, but it's more as rhetoric, because underneath it is really based on the old um, psychoanalytics of, of self and, and 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 so on and so forth. And I wanted you to comment on that, if you could.
2: Well, I do believe that it's that it's not unusual that it would come out that that kind of individualism would come out in uh, in strong spiritual streams eventually. I mean, I, I think it is a product. You, you, you've got to when your culture is. Um, uh, is, is person-oriented. You know, realize that we're coming out of a culture that looks at the poor uh, with, um, with, for whatever limitations, money, cars, education, technological uh, support, whatever the limitations, this culture in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s was saying, what are you talking about? What is this thing? You want more food stamps? Listen, if those people worked the way my grandfather worked, they wouldn't need food stamps. Completely oblivious of the change in the culture around them. Uh, my, my own father said to me, now listen to me, kid, when I'm growing up. Listen to me, Snooks, he said. Doesn't make any difference what you're doing. You can always have a job. He said, you can do dishes or, or, or you, can, uh, you can dig ditches or you can clean streets. You just have the humility, to, have to have the humility to work. My father was a good man and he was right in the 40s and 50s. But he's dead wrong now. Machines do dishes. Machines dig ditches. And machines sweep streets. They don't need me anymore. I've applied. They don't want me. <laughs> It's not there. They got everybody. You have to see this connection between what the society is teaching and what the faith is demanding. So what you're describing, I think, is absolutely straight on. And I I am not surprised that it it, uh, infects spirituality. Now, having said that, I also need to say quite strongly, coming from a tradition in which uh, mysticism, contemplation, and cloister are strong streams in that tradition, the fact of the matter is that the function of contemplation of the gospel, the function of contemplation of, of, uh, of, of the Spirit of God, is to lead us to that passage in Genesis that makes us responsible for this creation. There is no genuine spirituality in my mind that does not lead you into the public arena, to the poor. So I don't care how people get it. As long as they go into this spot, into this place, as long as they become, you know, the good Buddhist who says, when you say to the Buddhist, who am I? You are everyone is the answer. Nothing wrong with that answer as far as I'm concerned. You are everyone. But most of us don't get it. In this culture, we have been trained that I am me. Am I? Am I? And don't you get in front of me. The the Dalai Lama on this stage would not say that. He would say, I am you. All the great Sufi mystic stories say, I am you. They talk, about, they talk about the meditator who says, God, I'm listening. The voice comes. God, I'm here. Who are you? The voice says. I am your follower. And the voice disappears. And ten years later, the voice comes back. Who is there? And the, and the, uh, the meditator says, I am your disciple, great God. Where are you? What should I do? And the voice disappears. Twenty years later, the voice comes back and says, Who is there? And the meditator says, Only thou, great God, only thou. And the voice says, You and I are one. A function of meditation is to take on the responsibility for the co-creation of the world. Any spirituality that does not do that is a false spirituality. Thanks for your question. It's a beautiful question.
1: Uh, Sister, uh, there is a subset of peoples who get it, but don't engage in the powers that be, in the institutions. They reject them completely. How can what what do you say to those people?
2: I say thanks for being the model.
1: Well, yeah. In essence, uh, do we ask them to join us and work from within, or do we just celebrate their withoutness?
2: Uh, Where do they fit? Thanks. Great questions. Wonderful wonderful group. Uh, I have often asked that question by women, especially women whose, whose position in the churches is so painful to them, in so many of the churches. And I mean even in those churches that ordain women. Don't tell me that the ordination of women is the a- elimination of sexism. Uh, if you believe in fairy tales, go there, but frankly, I don't. Um, they will say all the time, you know, should I stay here? Can I stay here? What do I do? What's best? Should I stay in the church? Should I leave the church? Uh, my answer's always been the same over the years. I check it in me every once in a while, and I still believe what I'm saying. And that is, you have to understand that there are there are two great movers of, of society, uh, critics and prophets. Critics work outside the church, outside the institution, And the institution never accepts them, ever, and never listens to them. But other people do because they're outside howling at the gate. Who are these people howling at the gate? These are the people who've had enough. And they're telling you, don't go in there. This is dangerous property. The prophets are the people who stay in the institution. The institution will always destroy them, always kill them. But they are the people who keep the institution inside moving, thinking, required to respond at some level, even negatively. Point. There is no real answer to your question, except that we must understand that people... uh, my, My litmus test is, whether you're in or whether you're out, are you true to your own spirituality? Are you true to what is going on and what are your demands? Or do you just want somebody else to do it for you? So I don't really care. I have always said to women, look, if you're going to leave the church, don't leave quietly. (laughs) Tell them why you left. And if you're going to stay in the church, don't stay quietly. Tell them why you ought to leave. At least do that much. Uh, Make sure that your voice is not diminished. And then we should both celebrate and applaud and support and enable. And don't take these, these you know, it's like the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. That is a figment of the Western mind. There has never been a border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. There's not going to be one tomorrow. You can draw it on all the maps you want. You can teach it to all the sixth graders in the world. And as far as the Afghan and the Pakistani thinks, there isn't anything there. That's why we can't close the border. There was never one to close. till we created it, no soldier shows up in the morning. So we make borders where borders don't exist. So just don't honor them.
3: Have a question and a comment uh, because your talk is so fantastic, truly, and because it answers people's questions, you you directly talk to what's in our hearts and minds. Can't there be some way for us to get copies of your talk?
2: Sure, I don't know how, but we can. <laughs> um, I really don't. I mean, uh, I'm a, I'm I'm thinking of, yeah. Well, it probably Cheryl, is this published someplace? Yeah. There's probably, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a topic so close to my heart that when somebody allows me the opportunity to talk about culture and spirituality, this comes out. So it must be someplace.
3: I would be glad to help out in that effort, however I can be helpful. Thank you very much. Do I have a question? Yes. I don't know quite how to articulate this as well as I'd like to, but um, it seems to me that one of the things we have today, to put everything you've said in a different light, is a lack of conscience. Nothing bothers us. Mm -hmm. So if we try to start um, doing what you suggest, um, how do we do it in such a way that we're not written off as some new bunch of
2: crazy people? I Uh, cannot promise you that. There's, there's a great story. There's a great story about about the young disciple who goes to the to the old prophet and says, "I would like to be a seeker of truth." And the old man says, "Really?" He says, "And and uh, do you realize that if if you do what you want to do, that by the time uh, up to the age of forty, you will be reviled and rejected and despised." And the youngster says i don 't care. I want to be a, a speaker and seeker of truth, but tell me, holy one, after i 'm forty, what will happen to me? Will I be revered and respected?" And the old man says, "No, but by that time, you ought to be accustomed to being rejected and vile re-. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no, you can 't you, you have to um, you have to understand that The way you speak the truth has got to be your truth. The way you speak your truth cannot be a a condemnation of other people. It has to be seen and it has to be heard as your evaluation of, of the world as it is and the world as we all want it to be. And many people will reject you, but um, but many people who may never come back to say that ten years later they heard, there'll be people who walk out of here tonight and say, she's nuts, she means well, you know. <laughs> She's probably good enough at a poker game, but my God, she does not understand the world. And in 10 years, we'll be someplace, and somebody will say something else, say to themselves, my God, that's what that woman, who, what was her name? Couldn't spell it, couldn't say it, but I remember her. And that's what she was trying to say. That person will make tonight worthwhile for me. That's good enough. That's good enough. You just, you just throw... Your question mark into the sky and see if it comes down anywhere. Don't try to be sane, it's boring.
0: (laughs) Sister Joan, my name is Kate Smith. Hi, Kate. Oh, God bless America. (laughs) I'm confused because I'm a stranger here I don't recognize anybody but I am well known in Santa Barbara I'm confused because to me
2: you have a Jewish accent <laughs> hey sweetheart if I could be Jewish I would I have <laughs> there's a big Jewish part of me don't say that Well. Actually, (laughs) tikkun olam. Hmm. Tikkun olam. I live my life through the filter of tikkun olam. There's a lot of Jewish in me. It's called the Old Testament. I grew up on it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then
0: I want to say that my feeling is there will be no people that walk out of here thinking you're nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) This is Santa Barbara. My question is what does our country do to expose school corruption? There is a school to prison pipeline and our Mm. country's educational system (sighs) is abusing our children there is institutionalized racism Mm -hmm. in our schools that will expel the struggling in school minority student I believe that Santa Barbara has the schools of our dreams not the schools of the future that one is in Philadelphia But we have Santa Barbara City College Parent Child Workshops Starking. We have the continuation of that in Open Alternative School. I have been a vocal critic and prophet in Santa Barbara. I believe that there is in Santa Barbara there is an emerging party that is bridging the liberal Democrat and the conservative Republican we are mother deep love we are truth and justice and the American way versus humorless arrogance, illusory prestige brute force and primeval stupidity I think that you have articulated our confrontation with our county's most powerful superintendent in the country. I think that it is a re- revolution. It is not a revitalization. I think we have a revolution brewing here, emerging here, and I think that you could carry our
2: message to our president. Oh, sweetheart i am never get in those halls. I can tell you, though, I, uh, you're, you're speaking to a slightly used teacher. And I know what you're saying. I mean, uh, my, my, my grief over what has been allowed to happen in the American school system is profound. And I I think you made a, some wonderful statements there, and I thank you for it. And we're putting education at the bottom of a list. I happen to think we, it sounds to me as if we have a, mm-hmm. um, a president again who knows that without a good educational system for all children, we're going nowhere as a country. We are at the bottom of the bottom, and we're going to be there in a hurry. I thank you for whatever you're doing during the day. I ask people to realize that that. Education is what we're about tonight. Education is what our children have to have. Uh, Don't relegate it to another domain. Now, before I leave you, I'd, I'd like to leave you with some ideas far better than my own. The Zen master says, when you're discouraged, remember this, no seed ever sees the flower. You can't be in this for results. We're in this simply to maintain the voice until the hearers are ready to hear. The Sufi master says, Time changes nothing. People do. If you're sitting there saying, Yeah, yeah, well, you know, she's not, she's not all wrong. You know, that'll happen eventually. No. Nothing happens eventually. Time changes nothing. People do. If you want it, you must demand it now. Finally, the Greeks tell about uh, tell the story of Thucydides uh, in in uh, uh, terrible times in the Greek. Someone went to Thucydides and he said, Thucydides, when will justice come to Athens? And Thucydides said, justice will not come to Athens until those who are not injured are as indignant about it as those who are. We're in Santa Barbara we must be as indignant about the injustice in this country as those who are bearing it for us tonight and finally they tell the story about the horseman who was racing at top speed on a huge horse on a very narrow path through the forest and suddenly saw a tiny little sparrow flatten his back arms up against the sky like this the horseman reined in his horse and he looked at the at the little sparrow and he said sparrow what are you doing in that silly position and the sparrow said without moving little arms straight well sir he said I have heard that the sky is falling in and the horseman looked down at the little sparrow and said "And I suppose you think you're going to hold it up and the little sparrow said well sir one does what one can (laughs) thank you
1: very much let's thank her again